Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The jury just kind of saw her as brave. And I think I said that in the closing about her being brave and and courageous in, in trying to fix herself and carry on. She's not sitting here saying, woe is me. She's an extraordinary person. Please rise, court is now in session. All right, well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Uh, I am I am good. I'm good. You know, right after the holiday weekend and uh, didn't really go outside and do a whole lot, but, um, but um, you know, had a nice time home with the family. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't go outside at all. (laughs) (laughs) It was like the exact opposite of what Memorial Day weekend usually is, but um, it was kind of nice, but I think I need to, I think I need to get outside. I think I've been inside a little too much. I need to do like a masked outside trip somewhere safe. It's just hard because you see all these other people, uh, you know, who seems like everybody's going out now and now you don't know where you can go and and be safe. Yeah, it is really weird to see like, you know, it was on, I don't know when this episode will air, but it was on the news today about big crowds from Memorial Day weekend. And it's just very surreal knowing I was inside while that other stuff was going on. It was a lot easier to stay inside when I felt like we were all doing it. (laughs) Yeah, you had a lot more FOMO going on. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, well, all right. Well, let's uh, introduce our guest today. So um, our guest is a very good friend of ours, Yvonne, and um, a great lawyer up in Atlanta, Georgia. His name, uh, I'll, I'll just tell you his name. His name is Alwyn Fredericks. Alwyn, how are you doing, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Steve and Yvonne. Um, so Alwyn is a partner in Cash Krugler Fredericks up in Atlanta, and uh, you can look up Alwyn at cknf.com. Uh, Yvonne, I don't know if I've ever told you this about all the connections that Alwyn has with, uh, with our law firm. I mean, we've known him for a very long time. I know he's like, he's like one of our favorites, but I don't, am I missing some kind of cosmic connection or something? Well, well I think you know that Alwyn and our law partner, Jeff, went to law school together. At I already didn't know that. You didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> and then Alwyn and I, uh, along with Andy and, and Dave, his two partners, uh, all started well, uh, uh, very early on, all worked at the same law firm. Uh, the Middleton, Mathis, Adams, and Tate firm, which had offices in Atlanta and Savannah. And Andy, Dave, and Alan were all in the Atlanta office, and I was down in the Savannah office. Correct. Yeah. A bunch of young associates. They should have held on to all of us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. What a crew. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And we, we, you know, now we've got, uh, well, we've got one superior court judge who used to be with us and one uh, who's going to be a, a, a state court judge. Uh, who used to be with us and uh, just we had a we had a good crew back then yeah now when you were both at that firm did you do any sort of Atlanta office versus Savannah office competitions because if you did then Alwyn you know Steve is very competitive <laughs> I, well I know he's, uh, he has a competitive nature Dan but, uh, we, didn't, we didn't get into that we probably should have had some softball competitions or something yeah, we, exactly we, we would have had a, we would have had a good time I think <laughs> 
Um, I, I can tell you this, that, that both, back then uh, I had a lot more hair. I think Alan had more hair oh, yeah. and, uh, and, and I definitely didn't have the beard and I, I don't think you had the beard either. Uh, maybe you Not. were at a goatee. I can't remember. Well, you know, well, this is compensating for what I don't have on the head. Right? I was going to say, right, it's right. just, you both just had a relocation of hair. Right. Yeah. Well, right. I'm just waiting to grow mine out long enough and I'm going to cut it and then put it on my head. You know, just, <laughs> just <laughs> it on there. <laughs> You don't think that'll be a good look? Gross. No. Actually, you know, the other relationship I have with you guys is like with through Jeff is um, in law school, as Steve was saying, but Jeff was, uh, we had a nickname for him. I don't know if he knew about it. What was his nickname? Mr. Snuffleupagus. Uh, I, I, I've got, there's got to be a story here. So I, I we, well, it's just that he would disappear and we wouldn't know where he was, and oh, we were yeah. and we we were trying oh. to make we were trying to make out whether he was actually real or not. So good. <laughs> he he is, show up to collect his blue book from every exam, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he, he that is something Jeff has carried through. He is the king of ghosting. Like right. he's there one minute, and then all of a sudden he's just gone, and you right. don't know where he went. I tell people that like that when I know for sure that that Jeff is not going to be at an event is when he tells me he's definitely going to be there. <laughs> right. Every, otherwise it's just a question, but if he tells me he's definitely going to be there, then I know he won't be. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, um, well, Alan, let me tell everybody uh, uh, a little bit about your background so they can know who you are. As I have already said, you're a partner in the uh, law firm of Cash Krugler and Frederick's uh, you're, as I said, you're a graduate from Mercer University Law School. You're on the executive committee for the Georgia Trial Lawyers, and we're on the editorial board for Verdict Magazine. That's the uh, Georgia Trial Lawyers uh, magazine. You're very active in, in a number of, uh, of bar groups and, and trial lawyer groups, um, uh, AAJ or American Association of Justice, the ABA, Gate City Bar, Southern Trial Lawyers, uh, and the uh, Traumatic Brain Injury Litigation Group. Uh, are a super lawyer, uh, top 100 list, AV rated, um, have gotten great results in your cases. And, uh, and you know, um, a lot of times uh, I'll watch you speaking on, uh, on different uh, trial techniques and, uh, and always a great speaker. Well, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. Appreciate the introduction. I was starting to wonder who you're talking about. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, um, well, let's talk about this case that uh, that you've brought to us. The ca the name of the case was Jewel Wicker versus American Family Insurance, Jackie Owens, DBA, First Class Produce, and Parker Thomas Owens. Uh, it resulted in a $3.5 million verdict in DeKalb County, uh, Georgia, which is one of the counties uh, that Atlanta sits in. And, um, and the basic facts of the case are that on, uh, on a Sunday morning, July 22nd, 2012, at 8.30 a.m., Jewel Wicker was uh, driving to church. She's 18 years old, and she stopped at a uh, stoplight on Camp Creek Road, I think it was. And, uh, and while she was stopped, um, Parker Owens was driving a uh, 2004 Freightliner um, owned by First Class Produce, which was his parents. Uh, and basically, she was stopped at the stoplight, and he basically just did not stop and ran right over top of her uh, 2002 Honda Accord. Uh, caused her to be knocked unconscious, and she suffered a traumatic brain injury as a result of that. And um, 
And, you know, this is one of those cases, Yvonne, that we've talked about, you know, where the defense admits liability and um, in, in an effort to uh, keep the damages down. Um, and that's exactly what they tried to do uh, in this case. Um, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll get into this more, but, um, you know, with the way the injuries were described, and I would never downplay someone's injuries um, but you know, it, it, she was diagnosed with a mild traumatic brain injury. She suffered headaches, uh, and she had some increased anxiety and some tinnitus, uh, ringing in the ear, uh, and, um, uh, one of the own depression and, um, and the verdict, uh, I thought for those injuries. And again, I, I'm not saying that they're not serious injuries. They're, they're very serious injuries, but three and a half million dollars sounds like a, a very good result for that case. Yeah, it was it was a um, it was a big it was a big verdict. Uh, they had you know they had a million dollar policy that they wouldn't pay, and I wanted the policy. And right up to trial, um, they'd offered I think it was one hundred and fifty grand or something like that. Then after opening the the gentleman who was the uh, claims adjuster for American Family Insurance after opening arguments offered, um, but I think he offered 300,000 and, okay. uh, we just said, no, let's just see what the jury says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 One thing I don't think we've talked about on this show before, Yvonne, and this may be something that's just specific to Georgia. Normally you can't, um, you, you, you don't get to talk about insurance in a, in a car crash case. Um, but in Georgia, when you're involved with a motor carrier, uh, there is a direct action statute, which allows you to bring a case directly against the insurance company. Um, and so, you know, that allows you to do some things in a, in a uh, motor carrier suit that you can't do in a normal uh, car crash uh, a case. Um, and I, don't, I, I haven't heard of that in a, in a lot of other states, but uh, talk about that a little bit, Alan, about uh, yeah. bringing the direct action and, and the, you know, the strategic advantages it, it gives you. Right. So we sued the, the, the um, insurance carrier under the direct action statute here in Georgia, and that allowed them to be a named defendant. So that's something that um, I think juries kind of are swayed by. They realize there's an insurance company involved and, you know, the individuals that are uh, involved in the case aren't necessarily coming out of pocket to pay uh, any verdict that they render. Um, American Family Insurance uh, was an interesting group because they didn't really, you know, I, I, Georgia's funny because while you can sue the insurance company anywhere where they have a bro, any county where they have a broker and they do business, um, this case should have been, if it was just against the, uh, uh, the, the first class produce and Parker Owens, it should have been in probably, it should have been in, uh, in, um, Gwinnett County. But, uh, because we brought the, we, we sued the insurance company in, in the case, we were able to bring it in a, in a much better venue of DeKalb County and the insurance company, um, sorry, the other, but Parker Owens and first class produce could have moved the case from DeKalb to Gwinnett, but they never did that. So the whole case just ended up pending in, in um, DeKalb County. And we had this, in, this, you know, the big bad insurance company involved in the lawsuit who seemed like they were trying to downplay um, Jewel Wicker's injuries. And it just yeah. didn't play well for them. 
Yeah. And I was going to, I asked you about this off the air. Um, the, the, you know, when I read the complaint in the case, I think the, uh, First class produce and the Owens were all from Douglas County, uh, which is, you know, in in Georgia uh, is not known as a, as favorable county as as the cab is. Correct. Um, and so, um, in when in the way it was pled, it, it listed Gwinnett County, and it, I didn't see any um, any basis for the cab County. Um, but uh, you told me off the air that there was a broker for the insurance company in. Cab, but as you said, they would have had the right to move that to probably Douglas or Gwinnett, uh, and just didn't. Um, right. And so, uh, you know, um, you know, it, I mean, so that's great. I mean, because because uh, DeKalb County is a is a um, is a better place to try a case. Right. And a little bit to that also, Steve, you know, years ago, I did a seminar where we spoke about where I spoke about intentionally filing cases in the wrong county. Because what's the remedy in Georgia? Right. The remedy is just removal to the right county. Right, right. And oftentimes you come across defense lawyers who are just kind of lazy or they're too busy, quite frankly, because they've, they've got, you know, 300 cases or something. Right. And they don't move to remit. They don't they don't move the case. They don't change the venue and it loses and they lose sight of it uh, going forward. And it's not something I bring. I don't put it in their face all the time. Oh, you should be, I don't bring right. it up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and it, you know, and it, it makes you wonder in this case, since they were admitting liability, maybe they, uh, I don't know, felt, didn't feel as strongly about which County they needed to be in. Correct. Um, um, Alan, yeah. is there anything special that you do when you've got a direct action against the insurer? Is there anything special that you do in Vordier related to that specifically? Other than um, I guess qualifying the jury is to the insurer. Correct. We just qualify them. I don't do anything in particular um, to raise the ire too much. Uh, you know, I kind of, you know, I think a lot of jurors are smart enough to realize, you know, there's they, they hear the name and they get it. Right. Well, I, yeah. I, uh, on TV. <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to take issue with that a little bit, uh, Alan, cause I'm going to read something you had in your closing. Oh, um, what did I say? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you did a, you did a great job of what I would call polarizing the case where yes, uh, your, your, your client, you know, you basically the, the big, the big, question was how badly had your client been injured how bad was this brain injury and so you polarized it by saying basically they're just calling her a liar now they may be doing it in a nice way but they're calling her a liar um and uh, and at one point you're saying um you know what they were arguing you know how much money they should uh, give to your client jewel wicker and uh and you said uh, your response was it could it be because of something like corporate greed on the part of the insurance company which oh, okay. once you, once you have an insurance company in there, I thought that was a, that was a, a good argument. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, yeah, you were talking about polarizing the case. That's, that was definitely something I set out to do from the get go with depositions and the way we set up this case. I wanted to contrast um, the insurance company and the driver of the vehicle against Jewel Wicker. So, the, you know, I used to listen years ago, there used to be a guy on the radio, his name was Paul Harvey, and he would, and he would tell you a story and, you'd, and leave you in suspense, and then he'd say, now for the rest of the story. And so the story underlying this story was that we had a wonderful client 
uh, Jewel Wicker was, it was really great. She was a straight A student in high school and she was doing exceptionally well at Georgia State University in communications at the time they ran her over. And when she got run over, she, she was real, she was young. She was only 19, I think, I believe at the time, but she was really, really great at seeking her own medical care, taking sort of responsibility for herself and trying to get as many accommodations as she could so her grades didn't suffer. And this was sort of an independent sort of undertaking from her. And so, so she really was fighting to, keep, to stay in the game, I guess is the best way to put it. And so she, she, she did a really good job. And so she presented well in that regard. And we knew that we had a, someone that they would look at, that the jury would look at and think, wow, what a great person, what a hardworking young lady coming from such a very humble beginnings. And so we want to highlight that. Contrast to the driver of the vehicle, Parker Owens, who was a, um, he, two weeks before this crash, he was found with a needle in his arm. Uh, he had been shooting up um, uh, hydrocodone. Yeah. And a year prior, he was, in, he was in rehab for the same thing. And he was found by a police officer slumped over the, um, his armrest in, in his uh, red Mustang. And his parents came out and knew about it. And even though they knew he had a significant drug problem, they put him behind the wheel of the uh, 28-foot refrigerated Freightliner. And um, after this happened, they didn't test him. Right. And so there was this underlying issue of what was going on with Parker Owens. Why didn't he see her stopped at that um, red light that morning, waiting, waiting for the lights turn green? And why did he just run right over her without ever laying down any tracks whatsoever? And um, uh, so, so that was, so those were the two people that we wanted to contrast. And of course, American family insurance, who's always on the, on the television and on the radio advertising. So here's this wonderful, you know, this very beautiful human being jewel who, who was going to church (laughs) on Sunday morning contrasted against this guy who'd been found two weeks earlier, drugged out, slumped over his, his armrest in his vehicle, and his, his parents knew it, and everybody knew it, and they put him back behind the wheel. And so I think those were some of the driving forces behind why we got an outsized verdict probably in that case. Um, they had that, you know, and that was, there was a punitive phase that we never got to. Okay. Um, because <clears throat> uh, uh, they agreed to just go ahead and, and get rid of us right right (laughs) all right Yvonne this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning and I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations and I'm talking of course about legal technology services and you can find them at ltsatlanta.com 
Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into Legal Technology Services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is ltsatlanta.com, Legal Technology Services, uh, give them a try. I saw that you had a punitive damages count, and and the um and you had, you had in your pretrial order that um that uh, Parker Owens had been found slumped over his steering wheel, uh with an, a needle in his arm because he was shooting up um uh, oxycodone, right. and had been charged with DUI. Right. Um. And I but I couldn't tell if you had gotten that into evidence because I didn't see it in the opening or closing. Um. You know, and yeah. and I. It certainly was relevant when they don't drug or alcohol test, or you would think it would be relevant if, if they're not going to do a drug or alcohol test, which they're re, uh, required to do. Right. So Judge, Judge Purdom bifurcated yeah. the case. So the, the lack of a drug or alcohol test allowed us to have the punitive claim, um, but he wouldn't allow us to talk about it in the main portion so, of the case. But, so, I mean, so nor, you know, normally the way you bifurcate in Georgia is that you um, – you know, while you'll, you'll get your compensatory verdict, but they, the jury still has to answer whether or not you're entitled to punitive damages in that first phase. So I always argue that we're allowed to get into the punitive evidence in that first phase because the jury has to mark yes or no on whether right. or not there's punitive damages. And then, and then the second phase is for uh, the, the damages. What, did Judge Purdom not allow them to uh, mark yes or no at, at the end of the first phase? Uh, they did mark yes okay. for the okay. punitive phase. And um, it was mostly discussions that were off the record with regards to the punitive phase and getting into that portion of it. So they knew it was out there. Right, okay. Yeah, sometimes you'll see the defendants in cases like this try to uh, trifurcate. Uh, where they, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, who won't want to do the, the um, you know, compensatory or the, 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 that damages, then whether or not you're entitled to punitives and then what the damages amount is or, or something. You know, just yeah, no, you're absolutely change right. Change it around like that. Did they ever make a motion like that in this case? They did, they did not. They did not. They just kind of accepted the way uh, Judge Purdom was um, wanting to bifurcate it and they didn't argue one way or the other. They just kind of said, all right, fine with them. But, you know, it still comes out in Vaudar. You got to talk about it in Vaudar. Right. Because the, those juror members have to, the people who, the veneer has to be willing to consider punitives. And that was something we explored extensively yeah. um, during the Vaudar portion of the case. 
Yeah. I, um, I do want to just go back to something Steve said at, at, um, quickly about you polarizing the case and, and about whether your client was a liar, because I thought what was so genius is in your opening fairly early, you tell the jury that one of the things they're going to have to decide is whether Jewel is a liar. Right. And I loved that so much because then they're not thinking about you're not telling them what you have to decide is the amount of damages, you right. know, which is just not, um, does just doesn't have as much heat to it as whether you're like, no, you just have to decide whether you think she's a liar because if you don't, this is what she gets. I just right. thought it was awesome. Right. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we definitely, and you know, we wanted them because like she presented really, really well. And if you listen and if you, you had the opportunity to hear her speak, she is anything but she comes across as anything but a liar. She comes across as in, incredibly authentic and honest. So I, we wanted to do that. And then one of the other things I wanted to throw out there was, you know, sort of uh, I, I, almost like a red herring to force in openings, to force the other side to respond to some of the, some of the strategic positions they had taken. Like for instance, I knew that they weren't seeking to put up any evidence and they wanted, right. they wanted um, final closing. But what they did was they named an expert in discovery. They never, they would never give me a date to take the expert's deposition. And I asked for it multiple times. And at that point I realized maybe they don't really want me to take the expert's deposition. They just named the expert in an attempt to try to get, to temper us for settlement purposes. So I thought, well, I'm not going to take this expert's deposition. Plus I knew who the expert was and I had deposed him before and I wasn't really that concerned about what he was going to say. And so, but he was a neuropsychologist and, but they put him on the pretrial order. <laughs> so he's on the pretrial order and in opening, one of the things I said is I want you to listen closely to when they bring their expert out here. And he's Dr. Burns and he's going to, I assume that he's going to say that, that Jules isn't hurt or that she's a liar. And I want you to contrast it with what, you know, our experts are saying about her injuries. And I think that's exactly, that's what I said or something to that extent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm looking at your opening right now. Cause when I read this section, I was like, you know, it, you know, you, you wanted them to put some evidence in. And, and one thing I don't think we've explained in, in Georgia and I think other States are similar. Uh, but if, you know, normally, um, when we put up the evidence, the plaintiffs put up the evidence and the defense puts up the evidence in closing argument, the, the uh, plaintiffs have the right to open and close the argument. So they get first say defense goes and then they get the last word. Um, and except when the defense, you know, essentially admits the prima facie case uh, and admits liability and doesn't put up any evidence. That's the key. So when you have a case where they've admitted liability, a, a big challenge is to see if you can get the defense to put up some evidence, any evidence. Um, and you did it several times in your opening. One is you called out their, uh, their, their neuropsych Thomas Burns. Um, you also, I, I saw you mentioned uh, something about some of the medical records you thought they might want to put into evidence that right. sounded like you weren't going to put in. Consistencies. <laughs> right. That's right. And then, uh, and then the other thing I, I, that I, I thought I read it right, but was your client, did, did she have an arrest or something like that? Correct. Uh, 
Okay. So I wanted them to get into that too. Right, right, <laughs> she was <yeah>. arrested. <laughs> she, she was, she was, she was arrested because you're wondering that would never get in. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was thinking. I was like, how would they be able to bring that up? It, it doesn't normally come in, but I'm baiting them. <laughs> right. Right. Wow. <laughs> and so, yeah, she was arrested and she had and, and wrongfully arrested at a party. Um, and I thought the, the nature of it was a little, she was 17, she's going to a little party. And there was an officer that was overzealous telling her friend, to, telling her to move her car. She didn't move it quickly enough and he arrested her. Okay. And then the charges were dismissed. Right. And so okay. I was, and then she was treated because of the, the, like she, she had some trauma as a result to it, as a result of it. And, and, and she treated for anxiety as a result because the cop was really difficult, was really tough with her. And uh, I was just trying to bait them into getting into it to say, well, this is, the, you know, this is the basis for her. And they wouldn't do it. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, could, I could just, when I was reading the opening, I could see all the things you're mentioning. I was like, he's just trying to get them to put some evidence up to. Correct. Oh, I totally didn't catch on. I was like, how did this stuff get into evidence? Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, because it's, it's power, you know, obviously it's powerful. I mean, there's a reason why plaintiffs love to have opening and closing of the, of the closing right. argument is because we get the last say, I mean, it, it is a powerful position. So, uh, you know, in a case like this, the defendants, uh, you know, fight very hard to, um, to have the last say, um, right. Right. And, and, and oftentimes I'll say this oftentimes it's a successful strategy for the defense in keeping damages down. Um, yes, it is. Because you seem contrite. Yeah. And you seem like, yeah, we know we made a mistake, but don't listen to these crazy, crazy planet floors and these crazy numbers. Uh, we recognize it and we're just, we're here to, to, to you know, uh, to, to just do the right thing is the way they want to come across. Right. And I think one of the things you heard me say that's in the closing there is, um, reflecting on something the defense lawyer said in opening, which was, that it was that they agree that they injured her right and that was the first time i'd ever heard them say that <laughs> right so you know i want to call them out on it a little bit yeah yeah well and, and i like the way you you sort of uh characterize the whole case around uh taking responsibility for your actions and one thing that i am going to steal uh from you is in your you, you had a nice analogy in your in your closing when you're talking about you know, if you break a piece of art and, uh, and, you know, are you just going to give enough money to tape the piece of art back together? Yeah. You know, which is what they're basically saying by paying for her medical bills in one year that she missed right. from college and nothing else. Or are you going to, you know, pay full value and, and, you know, replace the piece of art? Right. Cause uh, it'll never be the same. Exactly. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was really good. I, I, one of the things I liked you did that, that I will not steal, but I liked what you did <laughs> was that at the beginning of your closing, you told the jury, you know, you were like, I'm done arguing. I'm not here to argue. I've yeah. been arguing with them for two years. Like, <laughs> I stole that from Tommy Malone. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I had never heard this stuff about the uh, hooting and hollering time. And, yeah, uh, I stole that. I stole that stuff from Tommy. <laughs> right. I read his book. And I thought it was just a great way to segue into the discussion. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so I got it from uh, Tommy. One thing that I usually do, but I didn't do in this case because there was an insurance uh, company involved was there's your partner. I stole a piece of, you know, Jeff talks about when you get back in the jury room and people are going to talk about where the money's coming from. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, it, you know, send a note. I think he says something like send a note out to the judge or, um, or you're not supposed to worry about that. Necessarily. Yeah. It's, it, you don't worry about, uh, uh, where the money comes from, when it's going to get paid, how it's going to get paid. That's not, right. you know, what their job is. Not your concern, not your job. Yeah. I, so I usually, I, I, I will say that, but I had an insurance company involved. So I didn't need to. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they, they, so after that, it was just corporate greed by the insurance company. Correct. <laughs> right. Well, I, I do want to talk, uh, you know, t- talk a little bit about what the injuries were to your client and you, you had uh, two experts, uh, um, you, uh, you know, to, the, to talk about it, a neuropsychologist and then a, a rehabilitation expert. But I mean, you know, it's, it, I always hate the term mild traumatic brain injury because right. it's not mild to the person who's suffering from it. It's just a way that medicine has of characterizing between mild, moderate, and um, I forget what the top level is, but um, uh but you know, I mean, I think your your medical bills were somewhere between forty and sixty thousand, if I, I saw. So yeah. so you know, significant, but uh, you know, n- not the biggest numbers we've seen as far as medical bills uh, go. And so you know, there there is a real danger of a of a jury, uh, you know, giving the meds and maybe you know, uh, right, a couple hundred thousand on top of that, and then that's your verdict. Um, so talk about how you, you addressed that, you know, her, her injuries, her damages, and then, and then got them to the place where they were, you know, willing to award three and a half million dollars. Correct. So one of the things that I battled with, uh, was, was trying to determine whether or not I was going to put the medical bills in at all. Cause I didn't want, like you were saying, Steve, you know, there's this sense of anchoring to low medicals. Right. Uh, and, and, and I knew that the type of money we'd be asking for, um, uh, that it could be con- counteracted by anchoring to those medicals. So I battled with that. I ultimately decided to put it in and sort of, you know, just sort of treat them as a throw in. I didn't spend a bunch of time talking about it. I just said, this is what they are. Right. Um, but I spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time, uh, dealing with our experts and and creating our demonstratives to sort of create a a sort of a a line from where Jewel was to where she is. Okay. And where she was, was this wonderful straight A student that was, that had all these externship opportunities and where she is is this wonderful B plus A student, right. which, which seems like such a small gap, right? And so we want to address that head on. We did it, and we did it through Jules' testimony, and through the te- and and through her mother's testimony. And one of the things that Jewel did was she was able to articulate well to the jury about the types of aids and devices that she was able to procure from the university and from her doctors to help her uh, continue to, to excel academically, okay? And so while it looked like, oh, well, you know, she was straight A and now she's just B plus, so that's not that big a deal. But for her, it was a huge deal because it, where she would spend, you know, 20 hours a week doing homework before or whatever, it became a 40 hour a week job. Um, it was in, it was, it was, you know, she had to spend double the amount of time on an average person. She got double the amount of time to take tests. She got double amount of time to get her schoolwork done. Um, And, you know, she, 
she had to let potential employers know that she had a little bit of an executive functioning problem because and so she talked about that um and and that was just in terms of you know processing and able and the ability to get things done in a timely manner she had the depression right and that's something that she kind of had the anxiety before but depression not really that much uh so we, we we really got into it with her like what did the depression mean for you what were you doing? What, how did it change the way you spent your day? And, and she talked about, you know, those feelings of sadness and, you know, and unhappiness. And that when she was discussing it, when, when she was discussing all her problems, whether it was the headaches, the depression, and we were just sort of running through them, she was very straightforward and she didn't, and she just told the jury in a very succinct manner. But when she got to the depression, is when she kind of, she, she broke down and started to cry. And she was crying, not because she had depression per se, but because she had to be on all these pills to deal with it. Yeah. And she was so young. And the jury kind of, you know, they got that. They, they saw that. And um, the other thing we did was with our experts, uh, I, I had an animation created because Mild traumatic brain injuries are the invisible injury. It is the ultimate invisible injury. It's not like a broken arm or, right. you know, or in your cases, Steve, where, where someone's in a wheelchair, you know, right. that's just, we don't, we don't, you know, that this case didn't have that. Um, so I worked with high impact in Denver to help create uh a visual for how the brain stops communicating, the cells in the brain stop communicating with each other and the result of that break in communication, what it meant for her and, and how it affected the different areas of the brain, okay? And so we created an animation that shows the snapping of the head back and forth, the skull hitting the front of, the, the brain hitting the front of the, the skull, and then hitting the back of the skull, it's called coup contra coup. Right. You're familiar with it. Um, and then it has axon shearing. And, and, and it, it, the animation was able to show in a very succinct way the way where that once that axon is sheared in the brain at a microscopic level, it's not a level you can see, um, that it stops the communications between cells, causing headaches, causing depression, causing, you know, causing, um, you know, executive function problems right? And, and Dr. Burke did an incredible job of getting up and showing how where the areas of her brain would have hit her skull, how, it, how they're directly related to the problems that she was having yeah. and how the, you would expect the shearing in those areas. So um, he did that really well. And then of course, you know, the neuropsychologist, I got to tell you, we use a neuropsychologist and I don't know, that I'm always a huge advocate of neuropsychologists. Yeah, yeah. Because some of it is a little junk science, to be quite frank with you. And, um, but we have this wonderful neuropsych from Emory who with an incredible reputation and who just is not a guy who, he was really actually quite reluctant to get involved in the case. He's not a guy who typically is, you see involved in, 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 um, in, uh, in lawsuits and he doesn't want to be involved in them, right. but you know, it was his patient, and so he had to do his job. And he was able to walk the jury through the testing that he did to identify why she was having the types of problems that she was having. 
and made the science very, very simple. And that was my big thing. You know me, Steve, I'm a simple guy. <laughs> you know, you know I'll, I'll have a beer, a burger, some right. fries, and, and, and that's about it. And I want to keep it simple. And so I don't want big talk. I don't want smart talk. I want simple talk because we're playing to the jury and, and, and the lowest deno- the common denominator and, and everyday folks, so they, they don't really understand the science. In fact, you know, I don't understand the darn science half the time. Right, right. So uh, my, my, what you'll hear me say over and over again is now doctors say it in a very simple, simple form so that everybody understands it, you know, break these words down for us. Yeah, yeah. And so um, Dr. Stringer was able to get up there and talk about how the neuropsychological findings were consistent with the problems that she was having and just sort of tie it all up nicely in a bow. And, you know, they never really put their neuropsych up for any, uh, to, to offer any counter to what he was saying. But he's so conservative that I think they would have had a very difficult time doing that anyway. Yeah. I thought, um, you know, in a case like this, uh, the, you know, there, there can be difficulties in that um, you had, I think you had two CT scans that essentially showed negative. no brain injury uh, or negative for brain injury. And that, that's always a really difficult thing uh, because, you know, when, when you can see the brain injury on a scan or a picture and somebody can point at it and say, that's it right there, that's, that's you know, much simpler for the case and much better for juries to understand. So it, it can be difficult to explain how there can be a brain injury, despite the fact that when you look at it by a, a scan, you're not seeing it there, but there's still injuries. And, and, and I thought um, in your opening and in your closing, you, you hit it head on. I mean, you, you didn't shy away from it. You didn't, um, you know, try, try and say something was wrong with the scans. I mean, you just said, yeah, they're negative, but you know, here's the reasons why she has a brain injury. And, um, and, you know, and obviously your doctors uh, did, did a great job. Right. And I use, you know, the shaken baby syndrome. Everybody right. knows what that is. Yeah. Right. And so that worked. I thought worked really well with the jury. They're able to get a sense of baby gets shaken. Nobody thinks anything's wrong with the baby. Yeah. And then years later or months later, there, there are developmental issues. And it goes right back to, you know, the fact that that brain had been shaken inside the head and we can't see anything but that's the only thing you can point to. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. 
They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Uh, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So. Right. Well, and right. How, how fortunate or for lack of a better word that Jewel was sort of at such a young age was sort of smart enough and strong enough to, uh, to advocate for herself, both for, you know, that for, for what she needed at school and also with doctors, you know, to not be sort of, you know, intimidated or exhausted to the point where you stop talking about the symptoms that you're having, especially when you're not getting easy answers. Correct. She was, yeah. And, and I think, you know, jury just kind of saw her as brave. And I think I said that in the closing about her being brave and, and courageous and in, in trying to fix herself and carry on. And she's not sitting here saying, woe is me. Right. Um, right. So I thought that, yeah, that was, you know, that went right into um, helping with the damages. Uh, so she was, you know, she, she's an extraordinary person. Uh, she now has, um, and I'll just fast forward you a little bit and this is all off Steve and you can get back, but yeah, you know, right. she, she contacted me uh, about three years ago, no, not three years ago, probably about two years ago. She contacted me about two years ago and, uh, was telling me about her new job and we'd had a little chat and, uh, and I said, well, how are you doing? And she said, I am, she says, I'm taking it day by day still. Yeah. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? She said, well, let me give you an example. About a month and a half ago, I had a headache that could not be broken. And it went on for two days. And so she went, so she went to the hospital and spent the day in the hospital dealing with the headache. And I called the defense lawyer up. And I don't know what made me do this because anything other than to say we were going to go out, he said, let's have lunch one day. And so I said, you know, it just made me think about calling. And so I took him to lunch and I said, I know you felt bad about that verdict, you know, a year ago or whatever. And he says, yeah, I did. And I'm still holding on to it a little bit. And I said, well, here's why you shouldn't. And I told him that and I said, the jury did the right thing. They figured it out. They did the right thing. They, they, they understood what was wrong and her problems are persisting. Right. So a um, little off topic, but you know, it's still, it's sort of a bit of an update of where she is. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, no matter how much money you're talking about, I mean, I, I haven't met a client yet who wouldn't give every penny back just to right. be back where they were before, you know, whatever's happened to them. Right. Um, you know, there's no, there's no amount of money that can, that, that will make you want to live with lifelong headaches. Right. Um, which, which affect every part of your life. I mean, it, it, you know, it affects your ability to executive function. It affects your ability to have fun with your family, to enjoy stuff. I mean, it just, it, it, your focus becomes the headaches. Right. 
Right. Well, and as, as we've said before, it is not fun to be a plaintiff in a lawsuit, no matter right. how clean and squeaky your background is and your medical history. It is a very hard process. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No. I, I, I wanted to talk. So the, it sounded like in the cross-examination of your client that the, um, the defense, you know, basically tried to point out, you know, how well she was doing and you know and and you talk about the the good grades that she was getting but that she was also i think uh maybe babysitting and so uh, probably making the point that you know somebody trusted her with you know caring for their children and and gave her that responsibility but and then there's some mention about a broken pelvis or something along those lines was that what what was that about right so in when when jewel went to the hospital she had overall body pain okay okay and so they inspect, they, they took x-rays of chest x-rays, legs, um, pelvis x-rays. And there was a, there was a misread x-ray that said that she had a broken pelvis. Okay. Now, I don't know if you've ever dealt with anyone with a broken pelvis, but there's nothing you can do for it. Right. Break your pelvis and you kind of just, you it hurts. Sit. Yeah. It hurts and you keep going. And so she had read her own records and she had seen that she had had a, that they diagnosed her with a broken pelvis. But once I got involved in the case, we realized there's no, you know, there's no broken pelvis here. Uh, It was a misread document. And uh, when we looked at the x-ray, when we had the x-rays looked at, looked at again, there was no, there's no broken pelvis. And so they asked her in her deposition whether or not she had a broken pelvis. And she said, yes, I did. Uh, and that was because of her interpretation mm-hmm. of, of the records herself. Right. Uh, but we never brought a claim for a broken pelvis. And so they were just kind of trying to bait her into showing that she's overreaching. Right. Uh, and, you know, probably something that should have been limited out um, because we never made the claim in our PTO or, or any part of the case. But so that was me pointing it out. That's them impeaching her with something she never claimed to have. And it just, I thought it looked disingenuous and, just sort of mean spirited on their part. Right. Right. Um, speaking of mean spirited, did they go into her any like sort of issue of whether her anxiety or depression was preexisting? Did they try to go there on her cross? Spent a lot of time on that. Um, they, and, and, you know, we, and we admitted that she had some anxiety right. prior to this. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem that we shied away from. And we admitted what the, what the, what, what the, what, we, we even, as we, you know, on direct, we walked through the pre-existing anxiety and what it was from. And so the jury knew about it. And then it was all, then it was almost like there was a clear line of demarcation where the pre-existing anxiety was intermittent and sort of here and there. And then after this wreck, which was the line of demarcation, there became just throws and throws of appointments uh, to deal with anxiety uh, that just never existed in that way before. So all I did was I put it on a chart and on a board and I allowed the jury to just see it for themselves and make their own decisions and, and come to their own conclusions about what they thought was causing the increased anxiety. Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hit, hit that head on. That's, that's exactly the way, um, yeah. you know, when you suffer from anxiety and then something like this happens to you, I think every I mean, your anxiety is going to get worse. I mean, that's just what's going to happen. Correct. And so, and then we talked about the photophobia and, you know, which left her in the dark 
uh, some days. And uh, I think a jury sort of understood. And if I had to do it again, I would have probably worked a little theme in around loneliness and darkness yeah. uh, because I think people really, um, you know, there are a lot of lonely people in the world. Mm-hmm. And boy, oh boy, now COVID has made. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, especially now, people get it. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, but we mentioned it, we talked about it. And she talked about, you know, being in dark in a dark room it, it, to try and deal with the, um, with the photophobia and the ringing in her ears and the headaches and just spending hours in a dark room quiet, quietly to get rid of those, those issues when they present themselves. Um, you know, talking about not overreaching, uh, which uh, what I was thinking about, it didn't look like you brought a claim for any kind of lost wage or lost ability to earn. And right. I, I assume that's because she kept her grades up and looked like right. she was still able to, you know, perform, even though maybe not at the same, quite the same level uh, that she would have uh, before. Correct. So um, I just didn't see uh, too much value in that. Again, I saw you guys try a case. You put up an economist. I went and watched you guys. You put up an economist and then you guys poo-pooed on the economist. In the <laughs> well, <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> I was like, you know, and, and so I didn't want any type of an- anchoring because she was so, um, she, she's so young. Uh, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a good economic history there. And I didn't want, uh, you know, an economist to get up there and talk about what, what could be into the future right. about diminished earning capacities. Cause I felt it would have been a little speculative and I just kind of stayed out of it. Um, no, I thought it was, I mean, absolutely. It was the right call. And, and, you know, just to, and just to talk about what she had to go through on a daily basis and that she was going to have to go through this most likely for the rest of her life. And she's a, she's a young woman. And um, so we're talking 60 years, um, right. a, a long time where she's just going to have to suffer with that. Correct. Correct. When can you talk just quickly for, especially for newer lawyers about what you do during voir dire to sort of prepare and through trial to prepare the jury for the amount of damages that you're going to be asking for? Yeah. So I attack that head on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I try to come across as a matter of fact, in a matter of fact way, uh, not that we're here hat in hand looking for a handout. I, I try to in, incorporate a theme of this is expected compensation for a wrong done and it's going to be millions of dollars. And it actually got, it actually baited the defense lawyer into talking about it a lot uh, during the trial. And it normalized it a little bit, quite frankly. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, it's just like, you know, it's kind of like, Somebody saying, you know, CNN's fake news. And then for, for the people who were inclined to believe it's fake news, it normalizes that idea or they didn't like the way they broadcast it before. They, it sort of, kind of starts normalizing that idea. Um, so in Voidar, I tend to, uh, I tend to ask a, a, the, the veneer a question of if there's anybody here who just as a general proposition, and I'm not really looking, I know that most of them are going to say, well, it depends on, on, on the evidence, but I'll, I'll ask, is there anybody here 
is a general population who have a problem awarding millions of dollars uh, for uh, on uh, you know for for my client to recover, and you know of course the the answers are well if you show the evidence, we're, mm -hmm. we, we don't have a problem with it, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that coming across from ten different people, uh, and, and the veneer and everybody saying that, and so because then I'm gonna you know we're gonna put up the evidence we believe in our mind so we're okay with that and but it's getting people talking about it and getting saying well if he's comfortable with it being you know, with awarding millions of dollars if the evidence is there, then so am I. Yeah, you know, it's it's always an interesting, depending on who your judge is, because some judges don't want you to talk about specific amounts of money or millions of dollars. But, you know, we always make the point, look, that, that's what we're going to be asking for. And so we've got to, we've got to know if there's anybody who believes that they, they just can't do that for whatever reason. And right. so you, I, I mean, you have to talk about the amount of money uh, and, and maybe not in specifics, but I mean, you know, definitely that you're going to be asking for something that's in the millions and multi-millions. And right. does anybody have any sort of just philosophical, you know, think that that's just wrong or there's just nothing that's worth that or, um, you know, right. and, and you need to hear from those people. Correct. Now, one of the things I do, Steve, is I will try to get agreement from the defense counsel ahead of time about rehabbing jurors. I do not, I am not in the business of rehabbing jurors. Right. And I will file a pre, a, 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 a pre-trial motion on the, the concept of rehab. And, and you know how yeah, it goes. Yeah. Somebody yeah. gives an answer that is, that makes them inappropriate for the jury by the, by the very nature of their answer. And good lawyers know bad, an, they've given an, an answer that is toxic. Let them have it. Don't fight it. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and, and, and just let them embed themselves very deeply in their position. And, I, and then from there, ask, does anybody over here, anybody else feel like Joe does? And, um, and once I get that, that I, I don't want either judge or defense lawyer to say, yeah, we know you said it, but yeah. can you follow the law? And the judges that want to agree, I said, judge, what you're really saying to them and what they're hearing through, through, through their ears is if you don't do what I say, I can throw you in jail. So you're going to do what I say, right. which is follow the law. And so they're not, they haven't changed their position. They've just, uh, uh, you know, sort of said, well, I don't want to get thrown in jail. Right, right, <laughs> right. exactly. And they'll find another way to get back to their position because they're hardened in it. And they've told you, this is part of the core person, the core being. This is part of my core being. I'm not about to believe in, in millions of dollars in damages uh, because, um, you know, where I come from, that just is not right. That's, you know, <laughs> yeah. God wouldn't have us doing it. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, so I want to get that agreement typically if I can. And so the, some good lawyers will say, sure, no rehab on either yeah. side. I, you know, that's interesting. I don't think we've ever tried to ask for agreement. We have a, a, a motion, a bench brief that we file, uh, especially depending on which counties we're in, um, you know, about uh, strikes for cause and then about rehabbing and, and right. what you're you know, allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. I, have, I don't think I've ever gone to the other side and said, see if they would agree to that. Um, 
you know, and, and, and it just depends on the lawyer and it, you know, some, some of them will try and, you know, do the old standard rehab and then, you know, we address it with the judge and ho- hopefully the judge will agree that that's not proper, but, um, but then, and some, some don't, but I, I, you know, that, that's interesting. I, I think it's a great idea to see if they'll agree to that ahead of time. And, right. um, and I, you know, I think, you know, most experienced seasons lawyer will probably agree to it. Right. Well, cause we're all sitting there during that rehab portion. Yeah just like mentally rolling our eyes and right. it's so ridiculous right. yeah yeah well it, and it's it's definitely you know it, it's definitely county specific because um you know depending on what county you're in you're you're looking for more uh, strikes for cause uh right you know, where you're, you're looking for a reason to get people <laughs> off where in other counties i might not be looking as hard so right <laughs> sometimes i don't sometimes i'll get up ask a question or two get a certain sort of just feel and feedback and I'll sit right back down and I right. want to ask that <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'll be like, we don't need to ask that juror any questions. Right? Yeah, yeah. We'll let them figure out what's going on and see if they're, because you know, they typically, the defense doesn't come prepared to ask a lot of questions. They right. let us right. do it. Yeah. So um, I, I tried a case years ago where we had a gentleman on the jury and it had to do with like, um, uh, it's, we, we call it the broken penis case. And so it had to do with, there was a lot of things with Viagra and Levitra Cialis. And there was a 40 something year old lawyer on the jury. Uh, he was a partner at a large firm and the other side embarrassed him in questioning. And he was, he, he was married to a lawyer and his and 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 his wife worked with in a in a building with plaintiff lawyers, and so I just kind of and we had all this information. And after I saw them embarrass him with the questioning, I just didn't ask a question. Yeah, and they thought, well, we got this conservative defense lawyer on the panel and we're just going to leave him on. And I left him on and he drove a nasty verdict. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then he called me after. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> no, I, I, I've seen that done before in, in, in voir dire where, where a lawyer will get into it with one of the jurors. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, why are you, why would you ever do that? Because not only are you annoying that juror, but you're annoying every other juror and they're thinking, well, he's not being fair with all any of us. Uh, and, and so that's the way he is. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I saw a, a, a lawyer one time with a, a really great reputation and, um, you know, held in uh, high regard do that in, in voir dire in a case that we had. And I was just, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, he's just, com- you know, um, completely just inflamed that jury in voir dire you know i was like you know what i don't know why you would do that right so you know for young lawyers who are listening to this don't try to fuss with anybody on their answers (laughs) yeah you know let them have them that's they're there it's their answer (laughs) they're (laughs) not their opinions if if anything in voir dire just let them talk let them say everything they want to say and, and, and then ask for more and then, and then say, is there anybody else who agrees? You know, does anybody else feel that way? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. One of the things that I've also learned, Steve, in, cause I've tried, I've tried three um, mild traumatic brain injury cases now. Um, and one of the things I've learned 
is if you have a medical professional in your veneer that has any sort of idea or information, extra information around traumatic brain injuries, I leave those people on because it is such a specialized area that they can help educate the jury. If you've got the evidence to back up your position, they're going to be advocates for you back in that jury room. And in one particular case, I went and asked, I think I asked the jury for two and a half million dollars. And this particular uh, psychologist, uh, young psychologist, she was late 20s, ended up driving the verdict up over three and a half million dollars. Uh, because she said that you know, we weren't, we, the 1949 ultimate table that we were using was not up to date. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the one that we, we all is accepted in Georgia, we all know it's, I mean, it's 1949. Uh, Correct, that's what she said. And so she drove up the verdict as well, that was part of it. Right, right. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, hey, I, I wanted to ask you, in this case, did you get a chance to talk to the jurors afterwards and find out what they, uh, you know, what they were thinking? Yeah, so we did. Um, the jury was extremely receptive to Jewel and her uh, plight. Um, they, they, a lot of them just, they just believed our story. They, they didn't believe the other side at all. Uh, they didn't. And then, you know, if you really boil down this case and you really strip away all of the, um, lawyering, so to speak, and just look at the facts. They really did not have a good defense. Right, right. Uh, they, they were relying on things like, look at all this, like you said earlier, look at all the stuff she can still do, right? And I don't know that that's a great defense. You know, if you smack me over the head with a baseball bat and you say I can still walk, but, you know, I can't talk and I can't feed myself, that's not a good, that's not a good defense. And that's essentially way. And so a lot of them were, you know, I think there was a line that a lot of them repeated uh, afterwards. They, they came out and said to me, Mr. Fredericks, you know, we wanted this, this jury, we wanted the verdict to be the difference between where she is and where she should be. And I think I said it in my, in, in my closing or something to that effect. And they bought that. They, they, yeah. they, they, they understood where she is and where she should be. Yeah. 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 So, um, they just kind of took our story, you know, I, um, part of the way we asked for the money was by sort of, again, using an old Tommy Malone tactic, uh, by anchoring it to, you know, what kind of job, right. what, what, would you, what would you, what pay is reasonable for her, for, for having to deal with this 16 hours of the 24 hours of your, the 16 waking hours of the day. You know, ten, twelve dollars. If it's twelve dollars an hour, then let's do the math. Right, and and that's the way we anchored that. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to go back to this point of uh, you know, that she was able to keep her grades up, was able to babysit. I mean, and and it sounds like this is what y'all did. And and what I think about a lot of these cases is when you've got a client who's been badly injured, but it but has you know done worked hard to you know, keep their life together. I mean, that just says something about their character and about how right. uh, hard they work in order to keep everything as normal as possible, because that's what you want when something traumatic has happened to you and is 
trying to do everything it can to change your life is you want to have your life be as normal as possible and achieve all the stuff you still achieve. So it just means they work harder and it just means that they uh, put more effort in and it really says a lot about their character. And, and, um, and it sounds like your client was, was just like that. Right. And then Steve, you know, one of the things that I thought Dr. Burke did extraordinarily well was to describe, and I didn't talk about it in closing or opening, but I probably should have, but you can't talk about everything. (laughs) But one of the things he did extraordinarily well was he described what he calls as, what he calls an intellectual reserve. So somebody who is high functioning gets in, gets a brain injury. Um, They are, because they were high functioning before this took place, they're still able to function at a level that others may look at and say, well, you're still, you're still functioning okay. You're not really bad off, but they're not functioning at their level. Right. Where they were before and what's expected of them. And so Dr. Burke talks about having an intellectual <laughs> reserve that is then taken away from you and you're using every piece of what you have in order to make it seem like you're keeping it together. And so the jury understood that also. So the ideas of she was able to babysit, she was able to still do reasonably well in school um, were attributed to that intellectual reserve. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I mean, because it kind of makes you think like, you know, take somebody like uh, uh, Albert Einstein and, you know, I mean, he's a genius and he has a theory of relativity. And he, if he gets a bad brain injury, well, maybe he's just a really smart guy, right? you know, who can be, still be successful, but he's not coming up with these things of a pure genius that have changed Correct. the world. Yeah. Well, and I think even non-Einsteins can relate <laughs> to the idea that even when we do something that's fairly intellectually demanding, we know we've got a little more back that we're like holding back. We know we could, we have more left in the tank if we needed it right. versus it has to be really scary to feel like you're using just like all of your processing power to do stuff that used to be, you used to be able to do pretty easily. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's like, it's almost like, I don't want to make light of it, but it's like when you're had a little too much to drink and you're trying to still keep it straight. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know what you're talking about. Me either. either. (laughs) I know it sounded like I immediately related to that, (laughs) but I didn't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, I was going to um, time with Steve to know better. Right, right yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Alwyn, this has been a great talk about, uh, about your case. Is there anything else that we uh, haven't talked about that you want to make sure that the listeners know about the, uh, the Wicker versus American Family Insurance case? No, you know, I think we covered a lot. Um, I just think that if you're doing these mild traumatic brain injuries, uh, just, you know, for people who are listening out there, one, spend your time working up your damages right. because you've got to make the invisible visible. Yeah. And that's, I, I believe, is the key. And that's done through your experts. And of course, through, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the testimony of, of the lay witnesses, but right. the lay witnesses were fantastic in this case. And we had four or five of them um, that came in and talked about specific vignette stories that to sort of show the jury what kinds of problems she was having on a day-to-day basis. Right. Uh, And, and I thought that that, that went really, really well. 
and try to find a superstar of a, of a lay witness because <laughs> everybody's got that friend out there that's just right dynamic and able to ca- really able to say who you are in a nutshell and 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 help and help the jury understand you know what's what's difficult to understand in two days yeah i mean it, it is really important to to get your clients to identify those folks who who know them who will talk about them and and it sometimes it can be hard to think of um you know but and, and you really just want those people who uh, you know um, don't stand to benefit from what happens, um, right. but they just want to talk about their friend and the differences, the, the changes that they've noticed in her. But um, they're, th- those witnesses are so important. Oh, yeah. And so we do typically, once I get a case of guys, one of the, in, in, once we decide to take the case and we determine it's the case, uh, what we do is we get them starting to think about that person very, very, very early on to help us identify and then we'll start interviewing those people right from the get-go. Right. Uh, oh, really? I like that. I right. feel like we're, we are always doing that maybe a little later. Yeah. <laughs> Some, sometimes it's figuring out, do we have a case? And once we have a case, then... And who can come on these days that we right. have to try? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, uh, well, Alan, this has been great. Let me, uh, let me remind everybody that we've been talking about the case of Wicker versus American Family Insurance Jackie Owens doing business as First Class Produce and Parker Thomas Owens uh, tried in um, uh, February of 2015 in DeKalb County, Georgia, and resulted in a $3.5 million verdict. Uh, And our guest has been Alan Fredericks, a partner at Cash Krugler Fredericks in Atlanta, Georgia. And you can look up Alan at C-K-A-N-D-F, and that's uh, and spelled out, so C-K-A-N-D-F.com. Alan, this has been uh, been just a great uh, a, a great interview. Thank you for uh, spending some time with us. Thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the Uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial, you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, 
our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.